This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Ontario is the first province with a lung cancer screening program. We'll tell you what you need to know. And it's an emotion we rarely talk about, consolation. That's the subject of former Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff's latest book, and we have it coming up. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadian adults get an F when it comes to physical fitness. A new report from Participation suggests many aren't making the grade when it comes to getting active, especially during the pandemic. 88% of surveyed adults said they were relatively inactive more than eight waking hours a day, which includes sitting watching TV, doing paperwork, or commuting. And when it comes to both daily steps and moderate to vigorous physical activity, the score isn't much better, a C. Being sedentary for extended periods can lead to poor mental health and increased risk of heart diseases, poor cognitive functioning, and type 2 diabetes. It was such a wonderful feeling to have my friend from childhood right there with me. Two best friends separated when their families fled the Nazis have reunited 82 years later. Betty Grabenchikov and Anna Maria Warrenberg last saw each other in the spring of 1939 in Berlin when they said goodbye. Now, eight decades later, at the age of 91, they reunited at a hotel in St. Petersburg, Florida. Overcome with emotion, both women say it was like they were never separated. Betty, who grew up to be a Holocaust educator, fled to Shanghai, China with her family, and eventually the U.S. Anna Maria's family escaped to Santiago, Chile, where she still lives today. Both women had tried to find each other over the years, but it was made difficult because they changed their first names later in life. Grandparents who want to read to toddlers should pick up a traditional paper book rather than an e-book on a tablet. A new study from the University of Michigan finds toddlers are more likely to interact when they're sharing a paper book, which leads to more talking. Further, unruly children prone to emotional outbursts responded better to reading from print versus digital. The report finds the whole point of reading to a child isn't just what's on the page, but the experience. The study is published in the journal Pediatrics. Canada's coat of arms has just turned 100, and one MP says it's time for an overhaul. Nunavut MP Lori Idlout wants a new design that's more representative of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. The current crest was proclaimed by King George V in 1921, and it features emblems honoring 
the country's English, French, Irish, and Scottish heritage. Laurie Idlaut also says the country should rewrite the motto that appears on the coat of arms, expanding from sea to sea to encompass the Arctic Ocean as well. One of Newfoundland and Labrador's last remaining Second World War veterans has died at the age of 103. Headley Lake survived the sinking of the SS Caribou Ferry by a German U-boat in October 1942. He was from the small town of Fortune, and his daughter-in-law says the entire community is grieving his loss. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your headlines from around the world. Lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer death, and now there's a new program that will save lives. Ontario is the first province to start screening people who are at high risk for the disease. Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price is an oncologist specializing in lung cancer at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Centre. I talked with him about how the program works and who is eligible. We've been calling for adoption of lung cancer screening for a few years now because the evidence has been there for about a decade uh, that we can uh, use uh, CT scans with a low radiation dose, so low dose CT scans, to identify lung cancers more commonly at earlier stages when, when they're curable, rather than the current situation, unfortunately, when we wait for people to develop symptoms and often it's too late. So who would qualify for lung cancer screening? So right now, the, the, the broad category is for people who are aged between 50 and 75, uh, who have had a tobacco exposure and fairly significant tobacco exposure. So on average, someone who's been smoking cigarettes uh, for up to 20 years or more, they don't have to currently be smoking, but have had some uh, quite significant tobacco exposure. So if people think that they might be eligible, uh, then uh, they would go through their family doctor and then into a referred to a screening program where there's a there's an eligibility uh, assessment. So it's a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years, right? So uh, that, that's right. So we use uh, we use um, a term called pack years. So if somebody would had smoked one packet of cigarettes a day for one year, then we would call that one pack year. Uh, so if you smoke three packets a day for five years, three times five, 15 pack years. Um, and so uh, generally, it's, we're looking for people who have, have had approximately a 20 pack year history. And you've been alluding to uh, the fact that getting lung cancer screening going is a lot more complicated than, say, mammograms to look for breast cancer. How so? We recognize that when, when people have a CT scan, uh, it might show something that, that might not be lung cancer. It might show something else that would need to be addressed. And for people who have had tobacco exposure in the past, it's quite common for them to have some other damage on their lungs, which may not be dangerous, uh, may not be a threat to their health or to their life, but does raise a question. And so we do need to establish programs where people who go for a screen, a screening CT, they would almost get put into one of three groups. One one group where, oh, look, there is something sinister there, and, and that needs to be uh, properly investigated, biopsies, etc. cetera. Uh, then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the people who have the clean scans and say, no, no, you're fine, this is good, come back for your next 
scheduled screening test. And then there's this kind of larger group in the middle where uh, we would identify maybe some abnormal nodules, which are 90% likely going to be benign, um, but or maybe tiny, so too small to, to stick a needle into safely. So there has to be some mechanism for, for monitoring all that, that middle group. Is that why some people thought that screening could do more harm than good? Well, certainly if you were to take the approach that anybody who's got an abnormal nodule on their CT needs to have it biopsied, then we would start causing harm. With lung cancer screening, if you're sticking a needle through someone's lung uh, to a small nodule, um, you know, the size of your fingernail, you know, you, I think it, it's fairly intuitive to, to imagine that there's the, there's the higher risk that you, you puncture someone's lung or you, you, you internal bleeding and, you know, things that are quite rare complications. You know, our radiology colleagues are highly skilled and know how to do this, but, but, st- but still, you can imagine if you were to start sticking needles in a whole lot of people, there's going to be some who run into trouble. So, so what we have to do is figure out this balance of where, where is the threshold where um, we should be screening people and we should be doing biopsies versus that line where we should be saying, no, no, this is, this, we can reassure you or we just need to kind of keep an eye on that. There were a number of big international studies which proved the value of lung cancer screening. What did those results show? Well, I can't give you the exact numbers. The, the, the patterns were the same. Uh, and the patterns are that for people who are diagnosed with lung cancer outside of a screening program, 75% approximately are diagnosed at stage three, it's about a quarter, or stage four, it's about 50%. Stage four, incurable generally. Stage three, curable, but very difficult to cure. And then if you go to people who were in the screening programs, we're seeing this, this flip of the numbers. So now 75% approximately are being diagnosed at stage one or stage two, where an operation has got a much higher chance of a complete cure. Uh, just uh, what's your advice to people who think they might benefit from screening? What should they do? Family doctors will be the, the gatekeepers of screening, if you like, um, uh, as, as they would referring for mammograms or colorectal cancer screening or pap smears, etc. Um, so if you think you'd be eligible, then um, reach out to your family doctor. Okay. Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. We have a lot more on advances in screening and treatment for lung cancer on a special edition of the Zoomer TV on Monday, December 13th at 10 p.m. on our sister station, Vision TV. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, the importance of being consoled in the face of failure and setbacks. That's the subject of Michael Ignatieff's new book. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. These days, we talk a lot about trauma, but rarely mention its antidote, consolation. Consolation. 
Music, painting, literature, and religion are all places we have turned to through the ages to find comfort in dark times. That's the subject of former liberal leader Michael Ignatieff's latest book on consolation. What made you write about consolation? It begins with your own life experience of loss and failure and grief. You lose your mom and your dad. You you, you get knocked around a little by life. So that is one source of it. I think the other source of it was um, being amazed once when I went to a concert where I heard the Psalms being sung. I was amazed by how powerfully moved I was by the Psalms, how comforting and even consoled I was by listening to these beautiful uh, ancient texts being set to music. And that set me thinking about why it is that religious language and religious music can appeal to us so strongly, even when we don't happen to be believers, and I'm not a believer. It took you a long time to do this. Yeah, I spent about four or five years on this project. The book is a series of historical essays that takes you really from the Hebrew Bible right up to the 20th century. And But my focus is always on individual stories and individual characters, because what I want to give a reader is a sense of the personal crisis, the personal moment in a, in a person's life that propelled them to write a great consoling work that we're still reading hundreds and sometimes thousands of years later. So you start with Job and the Psalms, the Hebrew Psalms, and uh, you also pose the question about how and why people can be comforted if they don't believe. One of the points the book's trying to make is that there's consolation in feeling this solidarity across time with people whose names we don't know. We don't know who the psalmists were. We don't know who, you know, um, a lot of the great biblical works were actually written by. Um, but we have a sense of the unbroken continuity of human experience. And, and I think that's important. Uh, we often tell ourselves a story that we're alone adrift in the scary 21st century. And the book is saying, now, wait a minute, there are lots of people who've been through much tougher times than us, and it's a good idea to reach back and reconnect to some of these great historical figures in the past. You're also talking about Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, and it's actually been a while since classics were part of a regular education. So how does that figure into things? Well, in the case of Cicero, I mean, we know he was a great Roman orator and orator and lawyer. Well, we and we know that he wrote uh, works of consolation, famous works of consolation. Uh, what we may not know is that in AD uh, AD forty five BC forty five, sorry, when his daughter died, he suddenly came apart. He had a very very severe crisis, which we can document because his letters have survived. And so what's interesting about Cicero to me is not, you know, the calm, commanding Cicero whom we were forced to read possibly in high school. But the <laughs> or, Cicero not. Who, or not. But the Cicero who, who came apart, when his life came apart when his daughter died. And so you can connect very deep, directly to a father 
losing a daughter and seeing how he works through that and comes out the other side. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty gripping story, and I try to tell it in the book. If I may ask, what were the things in your life that you wanted to uh, get help with through this? Coming to terms with uh, some of the failures, both public and private, in my life. Coming to terms with uh, the death of my mom and dad. Uh, you know, my, my mom and dad died a long time ago, but I'm still working through that, as one often does. Uh, I loved them. I miss them. I wish they were still here and they can't be here. You know, it, this kind of stuff, you seek consolation for these deep these deep sources of grief in, in any life. Uh, I don't, I don't think I have more reasons to grieve or more reasons to lament than anybody else. It's been a, I've had a, you know, terrific life, but it's had its short share of, of difficult moments. And, and I've, the point about consolation is you're not just seeking to feel better. You're seeking to understand something about what you've gone through. I'm assuming you're referring to your time as liberal leader, 08 to uh, 2011. So what conclusion did you draw about that? Yes, I, I think that was some of it. Um, you know, what do I, what conclusion I draw? I'm, I'm extremely glad I did it, but I feel, you know, I feel terrible about letting people down. You know, you want people, a lot of people pin their hopes on, on what I was trying to do and I didn't get it done. And, I got beaten, and you know you just have to pick yourself up and get going. And there's a wonderful life after politics, um, which has slowly unfolded for me. So it's not about me. That the thing that you want to console yourself about is is the disappointment you called uh, you caused other people, uh, and that takes a while to get over. And you have to take you have to come to some conclusions about what it is you're you were responsible for. And, some bits that you weren't responsible for. You know, some of it's just bad luck. Some of it's misjudgment of other people. You know, all you can do is take responsibility for what you were responsible for, and that takes a while to figure out what that is. Anything else you want to leave us with? No, no. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you as well. Thank you. Bye. That was Michael Ignatieff on his latest book, On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. Brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.